a nondescript German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And his act of protest against the selling of indulgences and other extra-scriptural practices in the Roman Catholic Church sparked what we now call the Protestant Reformation, which ultimately led to the greatest transformation of Western society since the apostles preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And we know that the Reformation reaffirmed the biblical truths that was once received and entrusted to all the saints through all the generations. And that is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Come on, y'all. That is a shouting moment. <laughs> Praise be to God. That, my friends, is all treats and no tricks. I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn again with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, especially verse 1 through 37, is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible outside the Psalms. And it is a prayer of deep sorrow, of confession of sin, and plea for help. The prayer, however, focuses more on God's mighty deeds and abounding mercy towards his people throughout history than it does on the people themselves. And as this prayer develops, it shows how the people recognize just how mightily God has acted on their behalf and, and how amazingly good and compassionate he has been, especially in light of their repeated unfaithfulness to him. That's the big idea of our discourse this morning, that God's mercy abounds even towards repeat rebels and sinners like you and I. This morning, I want to talk about sinners in the hands of a merciful God. Sinners in the hands of a merciful God. Let us pray. Almighty God, what an honor and privilege it is to gather beneath your word and to hear it read, hear it sung, and hear it now preached. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will meet us now in this place, that you would imbue your word with your power. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase, and that in all things we will behold the resplendent beauty of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Nehemiah 9 is divided into two sections. The first uh, five verses describe how the people come together first to confess their sins to God. And the second much larger section, verses 6 through 37, is the plea for deliverance in view of God's faithfulness and abounding mercy throughout their history. But central to all that is taking place in this chapter is the reading and proclaiming of the law of God. Some of you may notice that we've been going a little later than 11.30 in our services recently, and I've been warned by my boss that I need to trim my sermons, you know. In fact, I'm fairly confident that this is just Taylor and John's continued hazing of me. 
Last week, they threw me in the thick of it and made me run service all by myself. <laughs> this week, they assigned me one of the longest chapters in the book that isn't a third of names. You've got 37 verses full of theological nuggets and glorious truth, but all you've got is 25 minutes. Like, for real? <laughs> really? That, that's, that's what y'all finna do to me? So this morning, I'm going to ask for your indulgence, okay? And my ass is actually rooted in the text before us because as we see in verse 3, the people gather, they stood there, and they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. Now, Jewish days were measured in 12 hours, and a quarter of 12 is what? Three. See, I went to law school. Not Math is not my you know, strongest suit, so I had to ask that question for real. So they had a three-hour reading of the law, which was then immediately followed by three hours of singing and worshiping and praying. In other words, they had a six-hour service, y'all. Now let me just say, <laughs> this chapter with its 38 verses, really 37, because verse 38 goes with chapter 10, was particularly hard to condense into a single sermon. And at some point, I thought we would be headed not for the six-hour service, but for the six-hour sermon. But you can breathe easy, Pastor Taylor. I backed off going through the text verse by verse, and instead, I'm going to take a broad strokes, Goodyear blimp approach to the text before us. But before that, though, let me quickly point out three interesting features about this six-hour service, which are described in the first five verses. The first feature is that how they dressed declared their hearts. See there, verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. The clothes were interesting. They were wearing sackcloth, which was perhaps made out of coarse camel or goat hair. That's not exactly what you would call cashmere. This was itchiness to the max. And furthermore, they wore dust in their heads. Why? Well, it was an expression of self-humiliation. What they were saying in their dress was, this is how we feel in relationship to what we found when we read the book of the law. We want our outside to be representative of our inside. We want to let the world know our response to the reading of God's law is to recognize that we are far from what we might be or should be. Now it becomes immediately apparent to us that it's relatively easy to dress up. Sometimes we even come to church in our Sunday best. And, but then the expressions which are outward remain significant only insofar as they're directly expressive of what's going on inside. That's why we can wear clothes that make us appear very respectable, but yet inside we're very disrespectful. We can wear clothes that are representative of a particular lifestyle, but in fact it doesn't change our identity. But the people here wear sackcloth and dust in their heads as an expression of their self-humiliation. Second thing we see that we notice here is that not only was it true 
that how they dressed declared their hearts, but they stood where they stood, declared their allegiance. See there in verse 2, it tells us that those of Israelite descent separated themselves from the foreigners. Now you need to turn back to the third book of the law, Leviticus, to understand why it was they did this. Leviticus 20, verse 26. See, God is giving all these instructions to those who are his people to mark them out as different from the people around them. For example, in verse 23, he says to them, you must not live according to the customs of the nations. I'm going to drive out before you because they did all these things. I I abhorred all of them. And then in verse 26, he says, you are to be holy, which means you're to be set apart to me. You're to be peculiar because you belong to me. You are to be distinctly different because you are mine. Because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So the acknowledgement of this here in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, as they separated themselves on this occasion from their neighbors, should not be construed as an expression of arrogance or worse, racism. But rather, it should be understood as an expression of their submission and dedication. They understood they were different. Even today, an Orthodox Jewish family still understands this difference. So I went to high school in Long Island, New York. Anybody familiar with Long Island? They had a big Jewish population and had a lot of Jewish friends, and I played with them, volleyball, soccer, ran track, um, basketball. They, they were actually exceptional ballers. And um, I did a lot of after-school and extracurricular activities with them. But yet on Friday afternoons at 3.30 p.m., they left. They just dipped out, always. No after-school on Friday afternoons. They were gone. Why? Because they were different. Because the Sabbath was about to begin, and since the Sabbath was about to begin, and because they were different, they must separate themselves from those who were aliens and strangers to their faith and religious convictions. Now, that picture in the Old Testament finds its expression in the New Testament when God redeems a people for himself. Those whom Paul says are the true children of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This, says Paul, is the expression of faith. This is the understanding of what it means to be the people of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it makes it very clear for us. Who are you if you are a Christian? What's your identity? Are you different? And in what ways are you different? And this, where you stand at school, at work, at your clubs, does this mark you out? Oh, yes. You are different. Peter writes in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he says to Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you have received mercy. 
And says, now that has happened to you because you've been changed and made a new creation, Peter urges you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul and to live differently. Now to whom does this refer? To anyone who wanders into church? To somebody who's born in a Christian country? No, it describes those to whom he describes actually in the first few verses of the first chapter of 1 Peter. Here are three facts that are true of every Christian. Every Christian knows themselves to have been, number one, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, every Christian knows to be sanctified, set apart for God's purpose through the work of the Holy Spirit. And third, to have been called to obedience through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the application of Nehemiah chapter 9 before us is saying that the people of God separated themselves from all foreigners because of this. It is that if you are in Christ today, you are different. You are radically different. And don't be afraid to be different. So how they dress reveal their hearts, where they stood make clear their allegiance, and third, what they said revealed their need. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Notice here, notice here though, the direct correlation between the reading of the law of God and the confession of sin. Paul says of it in Romans 3 that through the law we become conscious of sin. But see now, this is an immediate problem for a lot of people, especially in our present age, who have imbibed the idea that Christianity is about the ultimate feel-good trip. That whatever Christians are, they're about being positive and having this positive outlook on life and about being successful and being fulfilled. And if you hang around them, you ought to feel better about yourself and generally about everything. Therefore, if you go to listen to the proclaiming of the word of God, then it ought to be an experience where you feel really great after it's all over. And as a result of feeling really great, then you go on in life and everything just falls into place. Live your best life now. But you know something? While the Christian life is not a call to drudgery or emptiness or some kind of horrible, dour existence, the fact of the matter is that the Bible makes this very clear. That the first encounter that the Christian has with the law of God is to point out what's wrong. And since we don't know what's wrong with us, we run away from these kinds of encounters. We, it, it's like we want to go to the doctor, as it were, and always get a clean bill of health. Fine, but, but what is the use with a clean bill of health if you're not actually physically whole? If Dr. Standridge right here puts his hands on any area of my body and says, uh-oh, we got a problem here, and he takes an x-ray and then puts it on the screen, and he says, oh, well, that shouldn't be there. In that moment, what he needs to do is give me the bad news of my condition. 
so that he can then provide me the good news of a possible solution. But we are so consumed with the idea that we're supposed to only get good news, that if anybody brings us bad news, we regard them as a close cousin to Attila the Hun. But when the law of God was read here, sin was pointed out and defined. Sin came out of its hiding place. Sin showed up and revealed the immensity of the problem. And beloved, I need to say this to you this morning because the Holy Spirit is pressing this forcibly on my heart as much as he may be doing on your heart. Because as long as sin in our minds remains simply a nuisance or an inconvenience or an embarrassment, then we will never deal with it and make any progress. This kind of encounter with God is directly related with the understanding of sin. That sin is an offense to a holy God. And the only way we can come to that conclusion is if we have the privilege of sitting under the kind of proclamation that took place here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Not in terms of length, but in terms of its content. Law of God needs to be proclaimed because without the proclaiming of the law of God, there will never be any forward movement. Jesus himself states just how powerful and essential the word of God is to sanctification as he prays in John 17. We heard it read earlier. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice here, Jesus' concern for his followers that they be separate from the world and that they become more Christ-like and less worldly by the sanctifying power of God's word. And so it's no surprise that we see the role of God's word in the gathering of the people here, Nehemiah chapter 9. So for three hours, they've listened to God's word read to them. And then they respond with confession and supplication before God. And the, the Hebrew text in verse 3 literally states, they confessed and bowed down for three more hours. Six hours, they've stood there and listened to God's word, and then they humbly bow down and prostrate before God and confess their sins, and it's the word of God that serves as the catalyst to their confession. You see, people who are serious about repentance and the confession of sin and live in pure lives before the Lord will prioritize the intake of God's word. That's what the psalmist indicates in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his ways? By keeping according to your word. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. It is the scriptures that teach believers what is correct thinking. 
what is incorrect thinking, what is incorrect behavior, and what is correct behavior. Because the one who truly repents and confesses his sin is concerned with thinking and behaving in ways that honors God. And just as all of scripture points to the grace of God, it has a convicting element that requires his grace. And so in the second part of the passage, a big chunk of the text before us, the people's prayer now moves to extolling the power of God. In their prostrateness, they cry out to God. After hearing the word of the law, and, and it revealing to them the depths of their sin before a holy and mighty God. They declare his power. First in creation. Then second in election. Third in redemption. Fourth in provision. Fifth in compassion. And finally in supplication. Now, while I wish I had the time to exposit the text and all of its rich goodness, I'm just going to focus on two aspects of this prayer which is the second, God's power in election, and the fifth, God's power in compassion. In this prayer, the Israelites walk through their history, starting with creation in verses 7 through 8, God's covenant with their patriarch Abraham. They recognize here God's power in election because he is the one who graciously chose Abram to bring into covenant relationship with himself. By faith, Abraham left his home and followed God's direction to a new land, a land that God promised would belong solely to his descendants. And then God changed his name from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. And this covenant God made with Abraham is the foundation, the foundation for the people's prayer in Nehemiah 9 as they seek deliverance from their enemy. Indeed, it is the foundation of their redemption from slavery in Egypt that is described in verses 9 through 10. It is the foundation of God's guidance and provision through their many years of wandering in the wilderness, as we see in verses 11 through 12 and 15, and then 19 through 21. It's the foundation of the giving of the law in verses 13 through 14. The largesse of God's gift to them of kingdoms they didn't create, Vineyards, they didn't plant. Homes, they didn't build. Cisterns, they didn't dig. God in his magnanimity gave it all to them for their possession because of his covenant he made. With this random dude, he plucked out of obscurity in Ur. Ur? But beloved there's a problem in the text. Because in verses 26 through 35, as the people are recounting all these amazing things that the Lord has done for them throughout their history, it all stands in stark contrast to their wretched sinfulness and rebellion against this same good God who has showed himself faithful to them for generations. Indeed, this is one of the great mysteries about God. The reality of sinfulness the reality of the, this simultaneous coexistence of his righteousness and judgment and mercy. 
When, when the Israelites time and time again respond to God's great goodness with rebellion and disobedience, he repeatedly disciplines them, but at the same time repeatedly shows them mercy and compassion. God's patience is incomprehensible. I mean, if it were you, your kid kept messing up in the same way, you would have kicked that little five-year-old runt out the house by now. You need to go fend for yourself, little child. <laughs> but all along, God, the good father, is attentive to them, even though they deserve punishment. And God's faithfulness to Israel is quite amazing in light of their repeated faithlessness. Yet God kept giving them another chance. The text says in verse 28, many times he delivered them according to his mercies. Many years he bore with them. They even admit in verse 33 that God has been perfectly righteous in his discipline towards them. In all the calamity that has befallen them, God was righteous. They confess that they had acted wickedly, yet God dealt with them faithfully. How now, Sway? How does a perfectly holy and righteous God keep messing around with the rebellious and inveterate sinners? It's the same question we are confronted with today. Even here in Tallahassee, beloved, why does a holy, righteous, and perfect God keep messing with you? Even though for the 10,000th time, you knew you shouldn't be on that website. And even though you said last week was your last time, last night you just couldn't help yourself. Even though you knew you should not have given your neighbor another piece of your mind. So much so now, you've given all the pieces and you've lost the piece of your mind. Even though you said you will work on your anger, yet another outburst against your kid. Even though you said you will respect and honor your husband, yet again you have castigated him and reduced him. Even though you said you would stop stealing from your company by spending the time you should be working, instead you're shopping. That's theft, y'all. And here you are again reporting 40 hours when you really worked 15. One easily besetting sin after another. I mean, some of y'all have been so close to hell, you came in here this morning still smelling like smoke. How? Why does a God perfect in holiness, inscrutable in righteousness, keep giving you and I another chance? See it here in verse 32. The source and foundation of this prayer the anchor of their hope and our hope that God will still come to our aid and give us another chance. Verse 32, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That is friends. That's your shout moment. God is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You may recognize that phrase, steadfast love. It is in the Hebrew chesed, God's covenant love. 
It is because of his covenant love that he gives the Israelites and you yet another chance. Why? Because that's who he is. He's a covenant keeping God. And God knew, God knew we were a faithless people. And that's why the promise keeper made the covenant, not with us. He made the covenant with himself. In Genesis 15, God made a promise with Abraham, knowing that Abraham and his descendants would be unfaithful. And because he knew that, he himself walked through the carcasses of the half animals. In essence, he was saying to Abraham, I know, I know you won't be faithful, but when you are unfaithful, like these animals, I myself will be ripped apart in your place. And the entire Old Testament is a picture of Abraham's descendants' unfaithfulness to God. That is what we see here in Nehemiah 9. Indeed, all of our unfaithfulness to God. And yet God proved himself faithful towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And we beheld the greatest display of the simultaneous coexistence of God's righteous judgment and his merciful compassion. It was there on that original Black Friday that we get the biggest savings of all time. It is what scholars say, the great exchange. The righteous son of God became sin for us so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. On that Black Friday, sinners like you and I fell into the hands of a merciful and compassionate God. And even still, when we scorn the sacrifice of the cross, when we choose to set ourselves up as little gods over our lives instead of submitting to Christ's lordship, when we fall into these easily besetting sins again and again and again and again, God is still faithful, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Oh, I wish I had two or three people that can testify to God's faithfulness in your life. Even when you have been unfaithful, God is still faithful. And that, like the people near my and I, we can approach God's throne of mercy with confidence that the same God who has been faithful and merciful to us in the past, he will yet have mercy upon us again and deliver us from this bondage. And all we can do, friends, all we can do is throw ourselves into the hands of a merciful God. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your abounding mercy and your steadfast love. Let us pray.